Hello and welcome to NLP Highlights, a podcast where we discuss recent research in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. In each episode, we discuss one or more NLP research papers with researchers working in that space. I am Pradeep Dasigi, a research scientist on the Allen NLP team at AI2. I work primarily in natural language processing with the goal of building systems that serve human information needs. My recent work focuses on training robust and data-efficient NLP models that can generalize across domains, tasks, and languages. Hi, this is a special episode of NLP Highlights in which, instead of discussing a few research papers like we usually do, we will talk about uh, open sourcing language models. We will start by discussing some of the important decisions one needs to make when building a language model and releasing it. Then we'll also discuss the open language modeling project or the ALMO project, which is currently an ongoing project at AI2. With me, I have two AI tours, Tess Beltagi, the research lead of uh, the Olmo project, and Dirk Dronwald, the engineering lead of the Olmo project. Welcome to the podcast, isn't Dirk? Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so let's talk about uh, open sourcing language models. In general, maybe let's start by talking about what it means to open source a language model. Yeah, so what does it mean? I mean, does it mean uh, releasing the data or the checkpoints or the training logs or something else? Maybe, uh, is can you get us started? Yeah, sure. So open sourcing a language model means you open source. Uh, there are lots of levels, various levels, but completely what we are aiming for in the Olmo project is a completely open source language model, including the training data and the code that generated the training data and the decisions that went into the design of the training data. And the same for the model. Uh, so like the trained model, the code, the weights, that the training code, and all the decisions and uh, choices that went into building all of, uh, of the aspects of the model. We might also add failed runs, uh, checkpoints for failed runs, checkpoints for ablations, that kind of stuff. Cool, yeah. Um, and uh, in general, when you release all these things, uh, for all the components that go into training a language model, what kinds of new research questions do you think we can answer? Things that are not possible with uh, closed or proprietary language models? Well, actually, when we when we started, we looked around to see what we had as, as starting points. And um, the thing that's the most useful is if you already have checkpoints for, for previous runs, you can sort of track your own run along with those previous checkpoints to make sure that you're not you're not lagging significantly behind in performance while you're spending all this money training. I guess that's more of an engineering impact uh, you can you have from from other people open sourcing their work, and we want to contribute in that in that vein as well. Great, thanks. Uh, is do you have anything to add? Yeah, sure. So there are two broad research questions here: uh, how do you build a language model, and how you and how you use it in in in, uh, in an application or uh, or uh, in a downstream task, and both of them have lots of open questions. If we are only able to use language models behind an API, that we don't, we can only explore one question, which is how to use an existing language language model. And we'll be very limited in the kind of ways and manipulations you can do to adapt uh, the, the language model for a specific test. So with an open source language model, you can explore so many different ways you can adapt the language model to your task or to your application. And, and and this is a chance for for the for us and for the research community to to research the technical details of building these models in the first place. I as we as we're going along with the Olmo project, I find it surprising how many things we have to guess at 
based on on rumor or based on our own experience where you would you would think that it would all be it should all be science it should all be published in a paper somewhere we should be able to read it and just follow known best practices but in practice that's not how it works and i'm hoping that we can move a little bit further along that route so that the next the next team that does this has to guess a little bit less can you give some examples of uh, some of those things well which which training statistics should we track over time of course you track loss we track uh, grad norm we Someone on our team is interested in tracking the cosine distance between parameter norm and grad norm um, because he thinks that that might give us information uh, about whether the model is about to blow up thousands of steps in, into the future. So if we track all these things and we make the statistics public afterwards, maybe someone else can also look at these statistics and find, come up with good rules that the next team can follow. Yeah, that's a great segue into the next question I wanted to ask both of you, uh, some of the decisions that we need to make when we are training a language model from scratch. You did talk about uh, specific statistics that uh, we want to track during training, uh, Doug. But even before we start training, I'm sure there are uh, lots of decisions that one needs to make, like uh, what data do you train on? How do you process it? What size of model do you want to train? And uh, how these decisions affect each other? So yeah, uh, is can you get us uh, started by talking some of the decisions that you had to make or the team, the Olmo team had to make at uh, AI2 and also some of the things that others might uh, have to make? Yeah, you, you, you gave a good summary of the high-level decisions. You want to balance the amount of training budget you have, the, amount of, the number of GPU hours you have with the uh, data set size and the model size and uh, with the model size, and also with the uh, available human resources and engineering and research time and people time that you have to build all of these things. So you need to balance all of these things. And within each one of these, uh, there are lots of uh, of details. Like given a, a y- we generally know that we are training, we are going to train a decoder only language, a decoder only, an autoregressive decoder only language model. Then there are a huge number of hyperparameters that you need to decide within the design of this model. Do you want to make the model slightly larger and train it on less uh, less uh, on less data, or or the other way around? Do you want model to make the model slightly smaller and train it on more data? Uh, how much data uh, you have? If you want to make the model smaller and train it a little, uh, a little longer, do you prefer? Would you rather have uh, a model be efficient at training time or having or have it be efficient at uh, at inference time with the model? Uh, how would you make the model scale to to long sequences? And then uh, there are a large number of uh, of uh, like little knobs and tweaks like this uh, on the data side as well. Maybe Dirk can can say more about uh, about those. Sure. Uh, the the reality is that we can do the the big training run only once, so we have to be a little conservative. So our our general approach is we we pick something that is fairly safe that we know will work that has maybe been vetted by other teams before, and we place a few strategic bets about things that we could change. So in broad strokes, we're using a, a Palm architecture um, as, as published by Google. Uh, one strategic bet here is that we're betting on the Lion optimizer instead of the Atom optimizer that has been de-risked at smaller scale by, by the Mosaic ML team. We're super grateful for that. So we thought we might try it. Um, on the data side, the broad strokes are that it's basically a the llama mix of data or the red pajama mix of data with some tweaks, such as the semantic scholar corpus 
that we have great access to since Symmetric Scholar is an AI2 project. And the other big deviation is uh, Reddit data. There was no Reddit data explicitly captured in, in Llama training, but Reddit is a, is a pretty large, fairly high quality source if you filter it right. So we thought we might give that a go. Dirk, you did mention uh, the specific optimizers and other tra tra training related norms. Uh, is there anything, uh, I think this would be very useful for someone else building uh, a language model as well. Can you elaborate on what kind of a training framework we are uh, using uh, for the Olmo project? Everything is built on PyTorch. Um, we are not using DeepSpeed. We're using only FSTP. We found DeepSpeed a little bit hard to work with, so we thought we'd try this. That has been going pretty well so far. Uh, I'm struggling to think what other, what other category of thing you would, you would want to go for. I guess we started with the with the mosaic uh, the mosaic ML code base. They have a really great, fairly minimal example of of GPT two with various configurations of various sizes. And the key thing there is that it's it's very hackable. You know, Hugging Face is great. They have a lot of a lot of different features in their models, and it integrates with all kinds of stuff. But those models are very large. We wanted something that we can very quickly put a bunch of tweaks into. And so that's where the the Mosaic ML uh, GPT-2 example has really helped us out. Great, thanks. Uh, is one of the things, one of the points that uh, you said earlier that I thought was interesting uh, was was uh, how the decisions that we make uh, about training a language model depend on the composition of the team, right? Depending on the size of the team and uh, the number of engineers you have, for example, but, uh, and the number of researchers you have on the team, the kind of decisions being impacted by uh, by those aspects of the team. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. So the three limitations we have or like constraints that we have are number of GPU hours that we have for training, our schedule when we want to deliver or like finish training the, the model, and the available human resource uh, human resources and engineering resource time. And the three of of these constraints they tell us how much we should embed the influence a lot of the strategic decisions that, that uh, Dirk uh, talked about. For example, given the amount of GPU hours that we have and the engineering resources and uh, human resources that we have, should we spend more time exploring different modeling decisions or exploring different data decisions and doing data animations and, and studying the data set position? So we decided, given all of these constraints, to focus more on the data side and go with a fairly standard, um, fairly standard model. Okay, great, thanks. Right, so the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, uh, related to the modeling decisions is earlier you mentioned uh, that we're following a standard procedure for building language models, uh, or we're building a fairly standard language model, right? Uh, what does it mean when you say that? Uh, what is the standard recipe for building language models? So the, the standard recipe is you start with pre-training the model from scratch, for a large number of uh, unsupervised tokens, then you continue, you do some alignment where you fine tune it on some instruction data and you continue training on some human feedback. But this is, this is the recipe that seems to be uh, working right now, but there is no, we are broadly following a similar recipe, but there is no reason that this is the optimal recipe. And uh, this is another important reason why the research community should be researching uh, large language models and why the research community should be re releasing these uh, language models because there's no reason this is the only recipe. 
and there is no reason this up my risk. Uh, it's very possible that it is better to in, to put the instruction data inside the as part of the pre-training data instead of a separate uh, fine-tuning phase. It is possible that we don't need the human feedback phase, and there are smarter, more clever ways of uh, collecting this data without the laborious human uh, human effort and uh, human effort to to annotate examples. So yes, so in in that sense. I will like following what what Dirk said. We we'll, we are mostly following the standard recipe here, but while the the high level standard recipe, while fine tuning or adjusting the the knobs in each in each uh, phase. But we hope that when we make these language mo- uh, language models open source, this encourages the research community more to study this recipe and see if there are better ways to do things. And for us, this is the first time we're training at this scale, so. We're a little bit conservative with our choices, but you know we're having thoughts about what to do next time around. And I'd love to take a few more risky bets next time, maybe on the architecture side, maybe on the data side, and deviate from the recipe a little bit more and see if we can do a lot better. Right. Uh, I can see how uh, these uh, phases uh, in language model training that is you talked about as being separate phases, really, they are really interconnected, right? I mean, for one example, I keep thinking about is uh, alignment and um, uh, alignment with human preferences. Uh, for example, if you want to ensure that the model does not generate toxic content or misinformation, right? It doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense to do it, think of it as a, a post uh, a pre-training phase where you're trying to align with these preferences, right? I mean, maybe these things need to be baked into the model even from the initial training itself, right? And I know that there are um, no good ways uh, or no good answers to questions like these. Uh, and it's probably really expensive to train models in many different ways because it it usually takes uh, several weeks to months to train uh, these language models, right? And it takes a lot of compute as well. But yeah, based on what we know so far uh, about how these models are trained, what do you, I guess is a question to both Is and Dirk, what are some of the things that uh, you think are worth changing and trying out uh, some interesting deviations from this? Um, you mean beyond what we're trying this time around? So the, the biggest thing I've been trying to push on is um, I think we need a large open source mixture of experts model. Almost all of the, possibly all of the open source models are, are dense right now. But there's a lot of buzz around mixture of experts, and it, it should be explored. If, if it was just up to me and we, got, we could do it a second time, that's where I would go. It is pretty clear if you, if you start reading on it just a little bit that you have to guess at a lot more settings if you do this, learning rates and, and optimizers to use and exact architectures and so on. It's a lot more in the air. There's a lot more known about dense models. So this is what makes it more risky, but the, the potential payoffs are huge. And uh, I will add, so Pradeep, you talking about toxic content specifically and making the model not generate toxic content. So this is a question that touches every aspect of the training of the model, like from the data all the way to instruction tuning and alignment and stuff. And and we know that people have managed to train models that would be large, that would draw largely avoid saying something uh, toxic or or, uh, or offensive, but the research, the NLP research community doesn't know the details of how to actually do this. So the approach we are taking right now is uh, on the pre-training data side, we are filtering out uh, 
significant percentage of the toxic content, uh, you don't want to filter out everything. You still want to keep to keep something uh, so that the model knows about these things, but you still filter out a significant percentage of it. And this is something that we are ablating on the data set side, on the data side, and and when we are figuring out the right filtering method and the best data set composition, then uh, there are two more steps you can do later on. One of them on the alignment side, where you train it on examples that tells the model don't answer this question if the, if the question is toxic. And there's an easier method that we that you can do, which is a post-processing, which is a post-processing thing. You have a small classifier that checks the output. If the output is toxic, you opt out. The model says, uh, I don't know, or you don't uh, generate this, out, you don't uh, serve this output to, uh, to the user. But the technical details of how to do the alignment, what is the best data set to use to train the post-hoc classifier, all of these things are still open research. One of the specific ways you can do alignment that takes into account toxicity is uh, control tokens. You have examples that tell the model. You have examples that tell the model uh, which content is uh, offensive and which uh, which content is toxic and which content is not toxic. And then you train the model with some control token. Then at inter- uh, at training time, then at inference time, you change the token, and that will get the model to generate the, to mostly generate the non toxic uh, content. And, and there are so many ways to, to do this. The control token is one is one method that's a simplification of uh, of reinforcement learning. But and there are even simpler methods that keep showing up. This is another reason that open source language models should be should be an important thing because this is where like people can start exploring simpler methods that would do the same that would do the same job. Uh, great. Yeah. Thanks a lot for that overview. Uh, right. So let's talk particularly about the goals of the Almo project. We did talk about. Uh, the goals briefly a couple of times already, but uh, maybe let's try to contrast what we are doing at AI2 with the Alma project with other uh, similar projects at other organizations. There are already several closed uh, or proprietary language models, and there are also several uh, open source language models uh, as well. And I'm sure many people are already working uh, on, on more projects as we speak. So can you try and Talk about how the Almo project is different from some of those projects. Yeah, so a stated goal of the Almo project is to keep academia and open source developers in the game. We see a lot of formerly public research disappearing behind closed doors, and, and we're worried about it. OpenAI is publishing less and less. Google is keeping things under wraps, and we're worried that the open community will lose access to state-of-the-art models and artifacts and become irrelevant. A similar thing happened to the research and information retrieval, where most of the work now happens inside of Google and Bing and never gets published at all. So we're going to open up the entire process of building the OMO model, starting with the code and the weights, of course, but intermediate checkpoints, models that were the result of relations, logs of which decisions were made and why, and so on. Maybe this is a good time to give a shout out to Eliezer AI, who have been following this approach for a while. We basically looked at that and said, that's great. Let's do more of that. So a few more things that make Almo unique. One of them is the hardware we use for training. So we are training on AMD GPUs, while almost all existing language models were trained on NVIDIA GPUs or on TPUs. So we have carefully benchmarked the hardware, making sure it supports things like BF16, which is important for training stability, and flash attention, which is important for training on longer sequences. And we recently started training 7B models and we are optimistic that the hardware will continue to scale to the 7 kb scale. Another angle is the pre-training data set design. 
know, given all the text on the web, how do we build the pre-training corpus that gives us the best res uh, resulting form? And this is a research question that is significantly underexplored in the literature. It is difficult to study because curating and processing large data sets is a difficult engineering problem. And once you have this data curated, it is difficult and expensive to run many, many ablations and many, many experiments to ablate different data design decisions. So this is a problem we are focusing on. We want to find the best setup, want to find the uh, and the best recipe in terms of uh, filtering the pre-training data, deduplicating the pre-training data, and finding the right mix of the different sources that we can include in the pre-training data set. Another focus for Olmo is scientific documents. While we aim for Olmo to be a general purpose model that works for all kinds of applications, we also want it to be particularly good for processing and understanding scientific documents. So some portion of the pre-training data is going to be from scientific documents. And this is also something that we will consider at instruction tuning and make sure that some of the instruction tuning data is from the scientific domain. The OMO project doesn't have one central research question. It, uh, it ties together several internal efforts that we already had that we're trying to answer separate, more detailed questions. There are some, some questions about architecture choices that might work, like the Lion Optimizer. There's been, even before the OMO project, a lot of interest uh, at AI2 about the importance of data, how to filter, how to deduplicate, how much code to use. In some sense, each one of these things could be a separate paper. They might not end up being separate papers each, but we don't quite know yet how we're going to distribute the research questions across the, the ablations that we can run. Oh, I guess one other thing I should mention is energy usage. There's um, at least two people at AI2 interested in measuring the energy usage of uh, large language model training. They probably have their own set of research questions about that. Um, is, do you have anything to add? So I like to think of Olmo as enabling other research projects that would have been difficult otherwise. I will give you two examples. The first is I, we hope to empower the research on how to close the gap between open models and other state-of-the-art closed models. And we have recent results that show that this gap cannot be closed purely by instruction tuning on top of models like LAMA, for example. So we need more capable base language models than what, we, than what is currently available. And we hope for Ormo to play a role in enabling this research. Another example is less on the technical side and more on the legal and ethical side. So we want to provide an example and maybe a blueprint that other researchers can follow on how to navigate the difficult legal and ethical issues around licensing, releasing models, releasing pre-training data, and also releasing human feedback data. These are difficult questions, and I don't think we will find the perfect answer for all of them, but we can, make, we can try to make progress here and hopefully make it easier for, for the community to navigate these issues. Great, thanks. A couple of times uh, in this conversation so far, I guess both of you mentioned um, how we started out with uh, projects that uh, or research questions that we were trying to answer at AI2 already and uh, use those research efforts to contribute to the Olmo project. I think that's that's a really cool thing about this project and that's one of the things that I'm most excited about as to how uh, we've organized the Olmo projects, the Olmo project internally at AI2. We have uh, people from various teams 
who've decided mostly bottom-up to work together towards building uh, the Olmo project. Can I, I mean, since is uh, since you've been involved in the project since the beginning, can you give us an overview of how this, this happened? AI2 has a large number of talents in the research side and also and in the engineering side. Everybody was exploring different aspects of NLP and trying to advance the state-of-the-art in NLP research and engineering. Some of these efforts were about how to build the language model, how to study the data, how to evaluate, how to use the language model in some downstream uh, uh, use case. And everybody, each one was trying to uh, trying to write a research paper about one of these uh, aspects. And this project is a, a good way and uh, is a good way to align these efforts, make them more impactful, and bridge the ga- bridge a large number of uh, existing efforts inside AI to make them more more uh, toward a single big goal. Great, thanks. Yes, I, I, as I said earlier, I think this is it's really cool how uh, the project essentially started bottom up, and uh, we realized that there were people who are already working on answering some of these research questions that are relevant to building a large language model. So, yeah, I think I think it's really exciting. Let's also talk about the external collaborators involved in this project. You already mentioned AMD. Dirk, can you uh, give us? Uh, uh, give us an overview of who else is involved in this project. Yeah, so the big ones are, of course, AMD and uh, and CSC, who made the CSC has made the Lumi cluster available to us for this project. Without which, we we couldn't be thinking about the scale that we're training at right now. There are a lot a lot of others. Um, I've mentioned Mosaic ML a couple of times. They have shared a lot of data with us, and we started with their code base. Um, the open source community is is absolutely huge in this. If I try to to name all the projects, I'll forget one, so I will I will not try. But I guess Eliuther is of course the biggest one of them. So they have uh, like with the with the Pythia project that has made a big impact on us. Also the Bloom project, which is not not Eliuther, but um, the Bloom project was a big influence for us. And then there are, there are a number of other companies. Surge is one of them for getting. Uh, for getting instruction tuning data. Um, I'm actually not too clued into that side of things. Maybe Is knows more about those vendors, the vendors for data, I mean. Yes, Surge is the primary vendor that we are working with to, to get instruction data. We explored a few others, but Surge is the, is the, the, the most viable one for us right now. Um, and I will add to this that... Uh, this is this is a large project that we cannot build on, on our I will add to this that uh, we are open to more collaborations and this is a project that we want to make it available for the open research community so we welcome more contributions and more uh, collaborations with uh, with people like it would be great if more of the open source efforts to build these language models are more coordinated we explore different research questions not trying to to do the same thing and uh, uh, pull resources uh, together. Maybe one of us uh, start building the model and then another one continue continue training the model a lot uh, a lot longer, which is going to make it to to end up with a better uh, a better single checkpoint. Yeah, so uh, more more of these collaborations would be would be great for us and for uh, research community. Well. I think that's actually a very important point. Here's because by its nature, the open source community isn't that unified. 
it will often happen that different teams are exploring the same questions at the same time. And I think as a community, we can do a lot better if we, if we avoid that as much as possible. I know it's not always possible because people have compute allocations and they need to produce results at, in a, on a certain timeline. And sometimes you, you've got to train with what you have. But we should at least try, you know, get together and explore different parts of the, of the search space. We've tried that with a number of different efforts, but I know there's more out there. We, could, we can always be doing a better job coordinating. Okay, so the people uh, listening to this podcast, uh, either individuals or uh, organizations, if they're interested in collaborating and helping with this uh, project, how would you recommend they reach out to us? Most formal way to reach out to us is by filling in a form we have set up for this purpose. There is a link that we can hopefully put at the bottom of the podcast. This is a great way for uh, either companies or, or other open source efforts to get in touch. The form might be a little bit formal, but we'll route it to, this, to the right people. But also, just reach out to us on Twitter. I think we're both fairly active there. If you don't want everyone to know, you know, send us a DM. Uh, great. Thanks. Uh, okay, I'll make sure to include a link uh, to the form uh, in the description of the podcast uh, of this episode. Right. Thanks a lot for uh, thanks a lot to both of you, uh, Isender, for giving us an overview of the Almo project and also talking about uh, uh, open sourcing language models in general. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? Uh, no. This uh, this was great. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, I was uh, fun chatting with you about this topic. Uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot.